Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. This is my dad, Ted. Welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Knightsky. Well, on this episode, I've got the authors of the book, Hacking Deficit Thinking, eight reframes that will change the way you think about strengths-based practices and equity in schools. Kelsey and Byron are fantastic. I had more fun with this and had to edit it up because of all the digressions and bird walks we took. I had so much fun with these two, and I think as you'll hear, they did as well. I wanted to make sure that you heard these two as we head into this time of the year so that you can grow from many of the different ways in which they suggest that we approach the assets of the people around us. So, Take a listen to these two school psychologists who wrote a book around assets together. Find yourself walking away with different strategies and ideas, but more importantly, hear from two optimists who charged into the storm, meeting each other, unknowingly looking for the opportunity to write a book together. All right, so welcome to the Smart Thinking Podcast. I'm joined today by two authors, co-authors of a fantastic book, which we're going to get into, but more uh, importantly, two people who I'm really excited to talk about today because of their life experience uh, supporting kids, systems, and schools, and, and leadership. So with me today is Kelsey Reed and Byron McClure, and I'm just very excited to have them. So welcome to the podcast, you two. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. So let's get started right away with just some background information. So Kelsey, uh, I learned that you went to grad school where uh, my little daughter Gracie is going to be going at Loyola of Chicago. Yes, but I did. give us the background, like where did you grow up, go to elementary school um, and tell us a little bit about that. And then I've got another follow-up for you. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Michigan. I'm from Holt, Michigan, which is basically in the middle of nowhere. It's like right by Michigan State University, though. That's what I always tell people. That'll bring some clarity to where that is. Um, so right outside of Lansing, uh, my elementary schools were um, I went to they were all like in, in Holt, obviously Holt High School, though. Like, I'm like, I don't know how to explain kind of what they are. It was, we just had one public school for um, the high school, for middle school, for junior high, et cetera. Was it one so, building? Was it one K-12 building? Or no, was it oh my gosh, no, 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 no. We had, um, I had a middle school, a junior high, a ninth grade campus, and then a 10th through 12th building for the high school. So lots Ooh, of the switches, freshmen, actually. The freshmen yeah. got their own building. That's like yeah. a big time out. Right. Yeah. And it was all it was like older and the high school across the street for the older kids was nice and brand new. So, yeah, it was a little like hazing almost. <laughs> yeah. Flush them out. Right. Right. And any teachers that you had in elementary school, middle school that kind of put you on your trajectory that really kind of demonstrated some great qualities that you remember? Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, I don't know if this is typical, but I'm thinking high school. I actually took a psychology class in high school um, and I was so excited about it. And I didn't know at that time that I wanted to be a psychologist. I, I didn't even know. I mean, I ended up majoring in psychology during undergrad. But I think that kind of paved the way his teaching style, how he brought in psychology into his teaching style, too. Like he would say, you know, like the the average person can only sustain their attention for X amount of time and then they they lose it. So that's why I have different activities that you do in class to kind of keep your attention going. And I was like, that's super interesting. So I, I would say him. Yeah. That's excellent. What was his name? Um, Mr. Olcheski. Yeah. We just shout want to out. give them, we want to give them a shout out, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really cool because uh, they, we had a neuroscientist on the podcast one time who talked about very similar things, right? Like, so the science of how the brain works and then mm -hmm. your application of behaviors and including in all of that. And he said that he said something very similar, which is that the human mind only has the capacity for 75 minutes of new learning in a day. And the rest of the time has to be action, repeat, application, uh, and inquiry and collaboration or else, or else you just lose it. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you're thinking about a kid's day, right. And in your world, like today, you said you had two IEPs today and you know, you're trying to figure out what makes this child different. Well, maybe there's nothing different at all. They just can't, they don't have an 80th minute for new yep. information. Yep. Lots of the time. Yes, I agree. And Byron, 
Where did you grow up and go to school? And what what was your uh, developmental formative story? Yeah, so it's so cool. Uh, Kelsey and I, I'm not sure where we'll share our story in a minute, but where Kelsey is working now, which is Prince George's County Public Schools, is actually where I grew up. Uh, Prince George's County Public Schools, which is located uh, not too far from the nation's capital, but it's a predominantly black county located in Maryland. And that's home for me. That's where I grew up. And PG County is a very interesting place um, because of this dynamic. One, it's a predominantly African-American community, but then it has the second lowest performing historically um, education department in the state of Maryland, only next to Baltimore City. And so on the one hand, um, in this predominantly black county, uh, which is also known for being the most wealthy black county in the United States. But then we have the second lowest performing uh, school district in the entire state of Maryland. And so growing up and matriculating through PG County Public Schools, you often hear things about the county. Um, but I had teachers who really poured into me as a black male. If you're hearing this uh, for the first time, I identify as a black male. But I had teachers who looked like me, who poured into me, who always recognized the strengths, the assets that I had. And so I had a very unique experience of matriculating K through 12. Um, what's really interesting now, um, going back to PG County, going through K through 12, all of the schools that I went through have now been closed down. So I went to Middleton Valley Academy, it's closed down. I went to Eugene Burroughs, uh, which is now Akakik Academy. Kelsey, have you heard of that? Any of these schools? I sure I've heard of Akakik. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. So they just renamed yeah. the school or they shut it down and then rebuilt it. Like so what? Middleton Valley was actually shut down. No students go to that school anymore. Um, for Akakik Academy, it was Eugene Burroughs. Um, they went through, I believe, like a charter school took it over or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, but now it's like K through eight, something like that. I don't know. It's different from when I was there. And then the high school is still the same. I went to Friendly High School. Um, and those were, you know, my experiences going through through K through 12. But and I think and we'll get into the book, but you hear all of these negative stereotypes. But I saw black excellence growing up. I love that. And 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 who are some of the characters? Uh, that are that are in your life's narrative that kind of helped yeah. guide you and mentor you uh, through your education. Yeah, at the high school level, and I speak of her often. Such a powerful story. Her name is Miss Janella Moore, and I often tell two stories because you got to understand the first one to appreciate the second one, and the first one as a ninth grader. Now I was a knucklehead kid. You know, if you wanted to apply those stereotypes to me, you know, I wasn't making good choices. I was a kid. And in ninth grade, um, I had my secret spot where I would hide out because, you know, who wants to go to class? Well, you should. Right. But I was doing knucklehead things and like I had my hideout spot. And so I was going to this spot, hiding out. Then one day I got very sloppy. And they just so happened on the day I got sloppy and like a days ago to have a hall sweep. And I got caught in a hall sweep. <laughs> and the ninth grade administrator at the time, he pulled me into his office and said, we have a zero tolerance policy. You're right. out of here. I was like, wait, what? Like, let me get this right. You're going to suspend me for skipping class. Like, that's a reward. <laughs> like, what? what are you talking about here? Um, but that idea of zero tolerance was stuck in my head. And then fast forward to 12th grade, um, I wrestled. I was really good at it. And I made it to the state championship. And we were two weeks out from going to the state tournament. Um, and then, I, again, still a knucklehead kid, more mature, but still doing knucklehead things. And we thought the seniors, we thought it would be a good idea to wrestle the juniors in the hallway. And now as an educator, like I imagine the pandemonium and chaos of 12th and 11th graders in the hallway wrestling. It looked like the WWE. It was chaotic. And again, I'm a state championship level wrestler. And so I'm moving. Okay, hold on. Can I cut you off? How did I not know that about you? That you wrestled? Yeah. I, I never did. knew that. 
I'm going Sorry, to continue. Share. I just needed to share my shock. Yeah, Kelsey, he's probably good too. He's probably wearing his wrestling singlet right now underneath. <laughs> Absolutely, that shirt. yeah, yeah. I'm not just- <laughs> but no, I'm gonna send you a picture. Can't make this stuff up of when I actually was able to make it. We'll get there. But I'm gonna share a picture with you all. I'm not making this up. And so again, state championship level. I'm running through the halls. I'm throwing kids out of the way. Then there's this one kid. It's me. It's him. It's a showdown. I pick this kid up for this suplex, and I'm throwing him down to the ground. And while he's in midair, Janella Moore, the vice principal at the time, she's like, Byron, put him down. And I'm putting him down, and I slam him to the ground. She's like, Byron, my office now. And so I go to her office, and I flash back to ninth grade. I'm like, oh. I'm about to be suspended. Zero tolerance. Let me go get my bags. I get it. She's like, huh? What? What is that going to teach you? What is that going to show you? And she put up my grades. She put up my transcripts. And I was not on track to graduate. In fact, I would not have graduated because we have to have a certain amount of community service hours. Kelsey, I'm not sure if if it's the same, um, but we had to have a certain amount of community service hours. I had zero. I had zero at that point in time. And she said, you are going to help out. She was um, coaching the step team. She made me a manager. She said, you could get your community service hours here. She made me do some other restorative things to get back on track. And that approach is what shaped me. That uh, at the end of the school year on graduation day, all me, my classmates were there, we're excited and we don't see Miss Moore around. And then we just felt like the life being sucked out of us and this air that was just in the atmosphere and words started spreading around that Miss Moore was tragically killed in a car accident on the way to graduation. Oh, And so this woman who had poured into me to, and I was a, a low level case, you know, I was, yes, I was a knucklehead, but I had my stuff together for the most part, but there were classmates, my peers and my friends who really weren't on track on this pace of life and like she saved them like she helped us and turned it around and so for her to lose her life tragically was devastating it was devastating and but what i learned from her and i reflect on that now with my approach being restorative focusing on social emotional learning that's how she was now i understand that ninth grade administrator was compliance driven zero tolerance it's my way or the highway and I learned that she cared about me as a person and she saw the potential of who I could become, which is who I am now. And I'm still not maximizing the full potential of who I am, but she saw that in me. And so you asked me like, who has been pivotal in shaping me and my story? It's Janella Moore. And that's my entire approach as an educator. Wow. You know, there's a, there's a couple things from there that I just want to share for you too to reflect upon. And that's that simple fact that, you know, we, we define leadership as anyone who has impact on another person, but more importantly, not impact, but influence. And every moment of every day, just by being yourself, you can change the direction of a whole lot of people and not even recognize it. Right. And, and, and I, I love that. I love that memory. I love that impact that Ms. Moore had on you. But most importantly, never stop telling that story. And, and the reason is, is because I think all of us who've, who've experienced tragic loss, one of the great things that I, I firmly believe that I learned from my grandmother was people die twice, once in body and once when their name's not spoken again. And the more we speak their name and the lessons we can learn and the legacy that they leave us, the more impact that that has. So, Byron, I really appreciate you being vulnerable and, and, and sharing that story with us. And what a great way to honor her now as as educators influencing other educators. Absolutely. And you know what? I love how you just framed that. And everything that I try to do and hope to do is in her legacy, is is in her memory. Um, you know, would I have been successful? Um, maybe, you know, but I know that she has a, a major imprint on my life and the decisions that I'm making, how I practice as an educator. Well, I can share with you both because I, I was a, a principal and a superintendent of schools and Ms. Moore did not take the path of least resistance for you. Ms. Moore took the, the hard road for you because 
uh, most teachers that I worked with in my past, most other administrators and most community members would have demanded that you serve a significant consequence for your actions. And like you pointed out, I don't remember ever learning a darn thing in detention. I don't remember anybody who's out of school suspended being upset that they're out of school suspended. Their moms and dads were, but they were like, ooh, good. So I got the day off and I get tomorrow off, right? But here's someone who said, no, no, you're going to do this, this, and this. So Kelsey, when we're talking about different pieces like this, can you tell me a little bit about how the two of you meet and then begin to collaborate and then are like, you know, are you sitting at a coffee shop or having a beer and like, we should write a book. How does it, how does it work for two people from two different parts of the world to come together and become such powerful advocates for, I guess, sanity? I love that. Yeah. So um, we met at our national conference, which happens every year for school psychologists. And um, this year it happened to be, it was in Chicago, which I lived in Chicago. So I was really excited about that. I was like, I can go to everything. I don't have to pay for the hotel. It's right down the street. This is great. And um, this was also the year that I had like two paper presentations, two poster presentations. Like I had a lot going on. And I, um, I just remember I was standing at my poster, which was on school discipline reform at like the statewide level um, in Illinois, something I was super passionate about, did a lot of work on in grad school. And I just remember that a lot of people walk up, you know, whatever. And this guy walks up and he's like, hey, uh, you know, this is really cool. Asking me some questions about everything. And he's he's like, you know what? Like, here's my card. I'm working on like I have a lot of cool ideas and things that I want to do to change like the the scope and the shape of the school discipline. You know, I just, you know, here's my card. Like, let's stay, let's stay in contact, whatever. And I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah, like let's let's do it. That's fine. And then I um at the time I had two posters going at the same time. So I ran over to my other poster to check on how they were doing. And he was over there. And I was like, oh, good, you made it. And that one was on the school to prison pipeline. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, and this is Byron I'm talking about, if, if you didn't catch the um, the pattern here. So so Byron's over there. I'm like, oh, I'm glad you made it over here, whatever. So after the conference, I don't remember how exactly we followed up. I don't know if I emailed him. I'm not sure. But we stayed in touch. He's got a lot of like just crazy or not not crazy. I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm not an ideas person. He has a lot of ideas, a lot of like big goals, dreams, and it's just super infectious, like the passion that he has. And I am a little more, I'm like, okay, what, what do you want to do? Okay, let's let's think about the steps, like what's involved in making that happen. Mm. And so it turned into the kind of this like partnership where he'd be doing things, he would keep me in the loop, he would kind of just like an awesome mentor for me. Like it was just, just, I don't know, I, 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 think a, a lot that a lot of people need a Byron because I was in grad school at the time, right? And he'd been practicing for a while and he just kind of hyped me up, brought me along with him. And we did a lot of things, a lot of, um, a lot of work together. We did a poster together, I think the next year, I can't remember it, but we just, we just stayed in contact. And the book came about after, um, he read my entire dissertation, which, um, I tell him to this day, I still don't know many people who have actually read my entire dissertation, but he's one of them. Um, and then, so the book came about, um, from, I mean, I can let Byron kind of speak a bit more to, to that piece. Um, if you want to chime in about the book. So before you do that, so basically the two roles are, we've got an innovator and a tactician. Is that what I'm hearing? Sounds about right. Yeah. So we've got ideas and <laughs> then the process. Yeah, yeah, no, that is, uh, I don't think there's a more powerful partnership than when there's somebody who can dream and then somebody who's like, pardon me, anchor ankle, boom, right on the ground. We're going to do A to B to C to D. So Byron, yeah. then tell us, tell us, get into the book. Tell us a little bit about that process and, and then how it's been so impactful. Yes. And, and you are very intuitive and that's exactly the dynamic that we have. And I think Kelsey and I, we understand that dynamic. Um, and so I was approached by a publisher and I've actually been approached by several publishers for a book. As I mentioned, I grew up in PG County and I've always known like what I'm good at writing, like math, like those type of things. And I'm I'm learning because we talk about some of these things in our book. I know what my strengths are and I know what my challenges are. 
And like the academic side of things, like I have to put in a lot of work. Kelsey, was that a more positive, favorable way to say it? Yeah, Kelsey, we're working you know? on not saying, oh, I'm bad at this, I'm bad at that. So good job, yes. yes. <laughs> we're actually living principles from it's our- Strength-based, yeah. Yes, being strength-based. And so like knowing that, I, I actually turned several publishers down um, because, you know, that was a challenge for me and I didn't want to do that. And, you know, with this offer for a book, um, the timing was right, yes, but I knew that I would be hiding my talents and strengths if I didn't get my message out. And so instead of just saying, I actually think I told them no. And then I think they were like, well, you know, what can we do to make this work? And I thought on it and I was like, I need somebody to help me. Can I have a co-author? And they was like, yeah, you could do that. And I was like, oh, well, that makes it easier. The only person who I could think of, I could think of my twin. I have an identical twin, if I didn't mention that in the first part of my story. I might have mentioned that. If I didn't, I have an identical twin brother. He wrestled too. He's always the calm one who like, hey, maybe we shouldn't wrestle kids in the hallway. We might get in trouble for that. <laughs> He's like the yin to my yang. And so I think I found Brian, who is my twin, and Kelsey, who like balances me out and I was like hey like Kelsey could be a person who could be really good and as she mentioned I read through her dissertation but even meeting her and seeing her initial poster like she has the knowledge the understanding to where I was a practitioner in schools and like I see it I can feel it I can explain these things but then she had the numbers the data the understanding behind it and even though she was a graduate student, like I saw that she had that and something I was passionate about. Like she's telling a story where I can like verbalize these things. She's telling a story through the data. And like that always really stood out to me. And so, like she said, we stayed in touch. They say, hey, you can have a co-author. There's nobody else better. Maybe Brian, but it is Kelsey. And so I reached out to Kelsey like, hey, can we do this? Like we're doing this. And then we did it. And now we have a bestseller. Um, and really at the core of the book is helping people to understand how to leverage their strengths, how to have a more balanced approach, because for too long, the field of education has been hyper-focused on weaknesses, on deficits, on what people cannot do. What well, Kelsey and I, if it's not anything else, we want to put forth an idea that can shift in a major way the landscape, the thinking of what's possible and let people know that you can shift from what's wrong to what's strong. Ooh, I like that. I, I also like when you have a, a partnership like the two of you, where you, there's, you know, there's a, there's one of my favorite sayings when I'm working with people around data, and that's first of all that word should be illegal, and we should use we should say information, because data does not have a heartbeat, so it does not deserve an emotional response. But too often, right, people are losing their mind when they see the data. They start casting blame. They start and, and for the two of you as, as psychologists in schools, working with kids and collecting data and information, and these are the facts, I'm always amazed by, and that's where I want you to go next, please. I'm always amazed by how I can sit in an IEP or even across the, from a parent and, and, or a teacher and say, listen, based upon our, our testing and our evaluations and our observations, you have normal in front of you. And then they won't accept it. Or, or... Uh, you see that there is an issue uh, where there's an opportunity for improvement and some interventions to get a child to the next level. And there's denial in that too. So your framework and your thinking, I think is so powerful to shift and help everybody involved. So walk me through what is deficit thinking and how to avoid it? Yeah, I can, I'll get us started and I can have Byron chime in if there's anything I miss. Um, but basically what deficit thinking is, it's really only viewing people as a sum of their weaknesses. So you mentioned um, the IEP meeting, I think is what kind of what you were talking about, right? We're talking, mm -hmm. is there a disability? Is there not a disability? And as school psychologists, that's where we really see deficit thinking happening the most. And it's because, you know, obviously, if you come to an IEP meeting, if we're in a meeting, it's because there are concerns by someone, by a parent, by a teacher, whoever. And those spaces are often just so hyper-focused on what the student can't do, what's what's wrong with them, what 
things they need to improve on. And it's just so what we are kind of our idea here, um, and there's a theory behind it, it's not just an idea, is that when we are more strength-based, more balanced in our approach, we focus on things that are going right, along with things that need more improvement, everyone feels better. So you talk about telling a story through data. Um, I think that's kind of where you're going. And I, I really like that. I like how if you do it right, you can do it in a way that captures the child as a whole human being rather than solely focusing on the weaknesses. So that's just kind of in our field. But in general, we just kind of argue in the book that the whole education system and a lot of just other areas in society are hyper-focused on, on deficits. So in the education world, you know, we have our students have to hit X benchmark at X time. And if they don't, then it's a problem. There's behaviors happening. They're a problem. Rather than taking the time to really think about you know, what what the strengths are, what the behavioral strengths are, how can we leverage those strengths for for students, for teachers, for for school buildings to to thrive, to be to be successful rather than just honing in on those weaknesses. So that's deficit thinking. You know what I love? I love everything about it because, you know, um, a lot of times I'll be working with teachers and administrators and I'll ask them to eliminate this this rhetorical question from their vocabulary. What's wrong with you? Right. What is the answer to that question? There's like no answer to that question. Like, what is wrong with you? Like when someone's at the peak uh, of frustration. Yeah. And what I like about what you're saying is like, we need to shift our framework to sit down. We're going to talk about what's right with you. Mm-hmm. Or and what's then we're strong gonna... with you is our yeah. catch line. What's strong I love with that. you? I love it. Yeah. Byron, when we're talking about supporting the needs of, of all of the areas in the in the developmental phases of a child, formative years at home and school, right? The two most important areas to someone's ability to be successful as they define it. How, how can we help parents uh, through your both of your research and, and your writings? What, what advice would you have for parents? Yeah, that's such an excellent question. Um, this is the, the nerd in me. I've always been a big fan of Eric Erickson's psychosocial stages of development. And one of the first stages that he talks about uh, I saw you ask it big. It's over there somewhere. Nice. <laughs> I'm, listeners, I'm pointing to my bookcase. But keep going. I love it. I love I love it. it. Yes, I saw, I saw your eyes get big. Um, but I've always been a fan, and in particular, how he breaks down the stages of development and looking at early childhood. And I don't think it's just for educators, but in those first stages, we have to talk about trust versus mistrust and those being pivotal. And I have uh, three young kids, my youngest is one. And what we're doing now is building a foundation to where he has trust. And if we can build on that, I think the world, he will have access to the world and can do anything in that. But what do parents need to do to establish trust, to move away from mistrust, and even to have a healthy conflict between the two to lead out of that stage and be able to progress to the next one. Well, what Kelsey and I, what we put forth is how can parents identify what are strengths? And I think an excellent way to start is for parents to be able to name, know, and use their strengths first. Well, you might say, why would we start there? Why wouldn't we just start working with kids? Well, same thing for educators, same thing for parents, same thing for anyone. If you cannot use the language, if you cannot tap into these skills yourself, then you will not be as effective doing anything else. Mm -hmm. So you have to start with self first. And I would encourage parents, there are a number of assessments and tools. One assessment is the Enneagram. That's a free assessment that parents could take. You can look at the Clifton Strength Finders. I'm a huge proponent of the Clifton Strength Finders because you can name, know, and use your strengths. It gives you your top five strengths. Now what it does, being able to name your strengths, you can know them, understand that I'm a maximizer. And what does that mean for me as a parent? Well, I know I'm a maximizer and I can use my skills and talents to maximize the skills, the sets, the abilities of people around me. So now with my kids, I am going to maximize the potential of my kids. Like that's a strength. 
one of my strengths isn't uh, strategic, which I leverage other people like Kelsey to help me with that, right? And even relationships with my wife, she might be strategic or have some other skills. And now we're nurturing those skills together to create an atmosphere and environment that is conducive to the having the conditions where we can establish trust, where we can establish this might be something that might be uh, where you might not have trust and move through those stages to develop the child in a very healthy way. So a very simple thing that parents can do is spotting strengths in young people. Being able to call out strengths. I see that you work very hard on that problem. I noticed that you are great at gymnastics. My daughter is amazing at gymnastics and being able to call those things out. Then once you can notice those things, now you have the lens. Kelsey, I, I wish you were going to say uh, deficit thinking is having this distorted lens. Mm. But when we have a clear lens, then we can help shape our young people and give them a lens of seeing things through a strength-based lens. And now I'm looking for strengths in everything that's happening. I'm looking for balance in everything that's happening with my young people as well. If we're going to be honest, I want to be honest with your listeners. I feel like we're becoming family now. My 10-year-old, he's on punishment right now, right? Because we're talking about development. There's some things we have expectations. And Kelsey, we talk about expectations and accountability in our book. And I'm like, son, like, man, you just got an award in school for reading like 50 plus math facts in a matter of seconds. But then there are some things over here that you have to work on as, as well. So how can I help meet the needs of my son so that he can reach his full potential? Like These are things that we, we have to rationalize and understand and work through as parents. But being able to spot strengths and develop a lens to see those strengths in your young people is crucial. Kelsey, I'll let you add to that. I am not a parent. So, you know, I, I don't have anything to add. I just, I appreciate, I, I can see, you know, on social media, um, Byron posts a lot about, you know, his kids and things kind of, and, and you see it in action. So I just, I appreciate people who are really practicing what they preach. And Byron is definitely that. And Kelsey, in the schools, you know, the, I think what's critical here in, in Byron's keyword, which is in the text again, it's just the noticing part of it, Right. And, and then it's creating a routine of notice and reinforce. Notice and reinforce. You know, reinforce what you, what you like and what's good. So on the school end of it, Kelsey, like what, what are some tips and tricks for teachers? And I also want to qualify this and everyone else who works in schools. You know, when there's 100 employees, 48 of them are usually people on the support end of the system who have just as much impact. If longtime listeners can tell you about the janitor at my grade school, the library aide at my high school. How, how can we focus on that at the school level, Kels? Yeah. And I think you make a good point that every member of the school community has to take part in this. And I think a lot of times, a lot of those um, those roles you mentioned kind of get undermined, but they make they make a big difference. So kind of similar to what Byron is saying, it's about noticing, first of all, your own strengths as a professional and using those strengths to better understand the strengths of the students that you're serving. So in my role as a psychologist, um, I always start by making sure we talk about strengths with, these are elementary students, elementary school students that I work with. And oftentimes I get, you know, I don't know what my strength is. I'm not sure. Or, you know, they only give me academic strengths like, oh, well, I'm good at reading, but I'm not good at math. And I'm like, well, what else are you good at? What other things outside of just the school space do you enjoy doing? So I think it's kind of, it can be like a breath of fresh air in this space that is so focused on, first of all, just weaknesses, things that, you know, it, that's all we notice. We notice the student who is running down the hallway, you know, that's, that's noticeable, but the student who's just, you know, walk in, following the rules, like that's, it, it goes unnoticed. And I'm kind of getting into like PBIS. That's why I really like those things like that, that take time and energy to notice things that are just expected, right? Like we don't, I don't think we do a good job of that. But so in my role, that's one thing is just um, identifying strengths with students. Um, when I go into classrooms with with teachers, I, I do my best to, to identify strengths to reframe things. Um, sometimes a lot of um, a big impact we see with deficit thinking is blame. So because we're so hyper-focused on negatives, on weaknesses, we end up blaming students, blaming kids for skills that they just haven't yet developed. 
And so I kind of reframe in that way, like, well, what can we do to, to make sure they get those skills, right? So it's just a lot of reframing the way we think about what's going on in the school and kind of how we can actually make an impact. So we, and it also leads to us feeling less powerless, right? Like when we think about it in this way, it's like, well, we can make a difference. There is something we can do. And when we are in this deficit mold, you know, it's kind of like we believe that there's nothing we can do, which I think is the most powerful impact of deficit thinking. Oh, I absolutely love that. I, one of the things that I truly believe that I don't understand about K-12, and I never have and I never will, and I will fight it every time it comes up, is when you get together with a group of high school teachers, they will say things like, you know, if only the middle school did their job. And then you get <laughs> yeah. to the middle school and the middle school teachers are like, I don't even know what they do down there. What do they do in the elementary school? Mm-hmm. And then you get an upper elementary and they blame lower elementary. And then you get to lower elementary and you get to kindergarten or 4K and, and they, they're like, it's the parents. So then they'll start to blame the mother and the mother will be like, well, I don't think it's my fault. His father's not that smart. It's, it's like it, it eventually, to your point, there has to be some accountability here to this is the best version of them that we have right now, right in front of us. And what are we going to do? And I, you two must absolutely be buzzkill sometimes at some different staff parties where they want to just like BMW, right? Which stands for something that rhymes with itch, moan, and whine. And I, I can imagine that you're like, no, no, but look at, look how kind they are. Look what a good citizen of the halls they are. And they're like, no, listen, we just want to blame. And it's so weird that it's human nature to cast blame instead of instead of solve problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because go, go ahead, cousin. I was just gonna say, I think I personally like, yeah. I mean, I know I can be a little. I'm sure there's some things teachers, other. Um, you know, coworkers don't want to say around me because they know that I'm going to just shut it down. But I also think that there's value when we're talking about forming connections with people and allowing that space to feel, to vent and recognize that I'm not perfect either. Like I get caught in that deficit cycle too. So kind of just humanizing and validating, like it's hard. It is so hard in the schools and I know that it's even harder to adopt this approach. So yeah, must kill sometimes, but you know. But I like that. I, I want that because because what we want is is and you just said something really eloquently. Like we can get into that deficit mindset too, but that's why we need a herd of buffaloes around us who are like, hey, we are charging into the storm, Teddy. We're doing this. And it's like, okay, then I can feed off of that 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 positive energy, that energy that's looking at assets, and then it can help frame the way people take on their challenges. Mm-hmm. And and Byron, I have a, I you know, for you, for you two, because we just met today. My, my five strengths are strategic, futuristic, activator, positivity, and learner. I am the most annoying problem solver on the planet because it's like, oh, what a great problem. Let's do this, this, and this. And Byron, I have a, I have a strategy for you uh, with your children that okay. I, I think plays right into your book really, really well. So in our house every night, and so my children are now, I have a junior in college, and a senior in high school, when they were little, 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 my wife, who's an educator, and I, who was also a teacher at the time, when she was pregnant with our son, Charlie, we did not agree with how we were going to raise our kids' management. We have very different management, like classroom philosophies. As a matter of fact, a lot of tension between us, because I'm like, why would you say that? Well, that's how you get, right? So we'd go back and forth. But anyways, three questions we ask every night at the dinner table. Question number one, tell us something you learned today. Now, we don't ask, what did you do at school today? Because what's the answer? Right? They say nothing. Oh, I don't know. Nothing, right? So tell us something you learned today. That's where we get to hear like what their interests are, where they're doing well, what's going well. And that that's where we can reinforce those things. And that's why I love your word notice. The second question is, how did you help someone? And we expected service and servant leaders in our family, but you can't just tell people Hey, go out there and serve. So every night we held them accountable for that service to others. And then the third thing was tell us something funny that happened at school today. Because our core values as a family are learning, service, and fun. But every night, ask the same questions. Every night you were accountable for the answers. And if you said something like, well, I didn't really help anyone, guess who's doing the dishes, right? So like you have those opportunities to kind of learn and grow with that. So what strategies and tactics do you have for us to support asset-based opposed to deficit-based? So I love that, the three questions. I have one similar. And the one that I have, I do it with my children. I recommend it in the book. And 
a little background, a lot of the principles that Kelsey and I pull from, again, we don't want it to be this feel good, like kumbaya thing. Like we're actually pulling from an evidence base. And a lot of it stems from the field of positive psychology, which has been heavily researched um, coming out of the, the institution UPenn. They've done a tremendous amount of research and work uh, in this positive psychology well-being space. And one of the most powerful interventions that this team has found that has a foundation of being strength-based is three good things. And for your listeners who might not be familiar with three good things, as you explained the three questions, it's similar. And this three good things, what it does, it allows the person to be reflective for the course of the day over what positive things have transpired. Mm -hmm. But what it does is makes the person reflect and then it is also forward thinking to make you on every day that you do it, you go through your day with the lens of what's working, what's going right. And you have to think of what's going well and why did it go well for me? And it's a powerful intervention. And that intervention has been found to increase rates of happiness, to decrease rates of depression above and beyond drugs, psychopharmacology, above cognitive behavior therapy and above those two treatments together. And it's had, it has had longer impact as well by simply reflecting on three good things. And I recommend that whether you're a parent, whether you're a teacher, that is a powerful intervention that you can use to be strength-based in your approach. One of the other things that Kelsey and I, we talk about in our book is a connection with well-being. And we introduce PERMA, which is a model of well-being. And PERMA is just positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And that three good things activity is very powerful because it's a way to increase positive emotion, which we all want to experience more positive emotion. So that is one way that I think is powerful. Practice three good things that any of your listeners can start that right here today. If you want to get into actual strength-based language and tools and things, start with the strength-based assessment. We mentioned some of them. I'm a huge proponent of the Clifton Strength Finders. There's the Enneagram assessment. Um, there's the values and action survey that's out there as well. Familiarize yourself with that. Kelsey and I, we created uh, the Strength-Based Collective. And on our website, um, we have a, a list of a ton of strength-based assessments that your listeners can, uh, can go to and try them out and see what works. And that will give you the language that you need to talk in the affirmative and use strength-based language. So those are two really easy, low-level ways to get started. And what a great way to frame conversations just with anyone if they're in a funk. If they are, you know, creating some different narratives in their mind of their value is like you said, to just to go with those three things. So Kelsey, you went to grad school at Loyola of Chicago. So I have to throw a little Jesuit jujitsu at you because uh -oh. okay. in the 17th century, no, what Byron's talking about, this is an old idea. This is multi-cultures over the whole world. And, and St. Ignatius, who was the founder of that order, he had a reflective question for the first Jesuits that they had to pray on at the end of every night. And I don't mean to get religious, but they had to, they had to reflect upon this question. What did I do well for others today? So three good things. What did I do well? So think about that because at the end of the day, you know, you, you, you do so many micro things for other people that you don't reflect. And, and again, when we're talking about strengths and, and assets of people, that question could just simply be like, what are three good things for me, for you? What are three good things I see in you? And that's what I loved. That's That was a softball I pitched you before. I wanted to share what I do at my house because when I read your book, I was like, what? I've never even met this guy. All right, or these two. So Kelsey, I have a question for you here before we wrap up. So how has being an author and the two of you working together really kind of changed you professionally? Oh my gosh. That is such a great question because as you, I mean, I, I guess you don't know this, but I am only a third year school psychologist. So I'm an early career practitioner and I'm co-author of an amazing book. And I'm, I just feel like I'm getting my feet wet. Like, I feel like I just started. I'm like, I'm, I'm a baby psychologist is kind of how I feel. So 
it's it's a weird and, and coming kind of straight out of grad school. So I graduated in 2020. We know pandemic times um, kind of like sped up the world, but slowed everything down, too. So it just it feels like just yesterday was 2020 almost like just just weird. So I kind of had an identity crisis for a little bit. I'll be honest, because, you know, your identity, my identity was a student for so long. And then um, my identity is a school psychologist. But I'm, I'm a new school psychologist. So I always say that, you know, um, and now I'm I'm co-author. So I think I'm getting all of these, you know, we're on this podcast right now. And we're doing presentations and I'm doing all of these like really, really cool things that, first of all, I'll say in the spirit of just being vulnerable, the imposter syndrome, huge, especially working with Byron. He's amazing, you know, like just so I think there's a lot of that. But then also just kind of stepping into my power and leaning into, you know, I, I know what I'm talking about. You know, I am. I deserve to be here, I think. So I'm working on just kind of speaking about that in the in the affirmative and um, pushing through that and realizing that this is just the beginning and um, and this is a positive thing, you know, so I'm, I'm just kind of working through that. But it's really impacted me in in a lot of ways. It's really cool. I have teachers at my school who brought like the book in. They wanted me to sign it. And I'm like, this is crazy. Oh. Like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So it's just it's been really surreal just kind of walking the life of being so new into the field, but also like having this really successful thing that happened pretty quickly. You've got a wonderful, you've got a wonderful confidence, humility that I really, really admire and appreciate. And I think where you're different than I am is when I was uh, early in my career, if if somebody would have kind of pushed back and said something to me like, well, who do you think you are? I'd have been like, excuse me. I would have gone into my book bag and like slid one across the table. I'm, (laughs) I'm that person right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not. But I'm but I'm working on. It. You got to find a balance, right? Everything is about balance. And Well, um... we just we live in we live in a world where there are a lot of people who um, you know, when you discover something or you become passionate about something or you become an advocate or you're recognized for it, ooh, they love to like pull you back to the back to earth and it's mm-hmm. and and just and just keep up that energy. And Byron, same question for you. I mean, how's it changed things for you? Well, I've had to elevate my technology and you can tell I'm still getting new in this space because my microphone wasn't switched over. So my uh, quality might have just switched. It might be sounding a little bit better now. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But for me, Kelsey, that was a super thoughtful answer and response. For me, it's really put me in a space where I have to practice what I preach. And it's it's really great that you asked the questions about the parenting dynamic because parenting will push you to your limits (laughs) and you will learn a lot about yourself. And so writing the book, I really have to apply the principles that I'm talking about so that when I go out, it's like, hey, like I'm really living by these things and I can really speak on it. Um, of course, I've done it inside of the school, but when you have your own kids, it's it's a little bit different. Um, the other thing that I will say is it has really stretched me above and beyond my comfort zone. When we first started, I talked about growing up um, and being a product of PG County schools. And I have to work to say that I am learning to be better in math and that I'm growing um, to be a writer, because I would just say, like, I was trash in writing. I was a terrible person. At, like, I was just not good at math. Like, and I mean, that might be true. Like, I failed pre-calculus in college. Like, I had to take it in summer school. Like, I had to get tutored in high school for math. Like, even way back to, like, middle school. Like, I just wasn't strong in those areas. And so being able to write a book challenged me. And it pushed me and pulled me in directions that it was hard. But being able to overcome some of those personal challenges that I have, like I am a testament of what's possible. And showing everybody that, no, you can shift from what's wrong to what's strong because I have done it. And I am a testament that you there is no bounds that you have to live within. There are no restraints other than the ones that you're mentally putting in yourself and that you can be balanced in your approach, but that if you can shift to what's strong, like magic can happen and can come from that. 
And so like those are some things that not only I've noticed, but I'm living it every single day. And so, you know, it's not an aura of here's my book, like know who I am. But it's just the confidence that I have knowing that I overcame something that was so big in my life and knowing that I've done it. Um, it's a major accomplishment that I, I show myself like I'm I'm proud of me. So I love it. And I, I think one of the things that uh, having talked to you to now is that, uh, you know, in looking at the text, I, I think resiliency is something that when you can model like you two have right? Whether that be through your life experiences formative in your, in your schools or, or the, whether that being, being young and then just kind of getting out there and, and, and pushing through and doing these things. I think that's a quality that's, that's uh, looked past too often. And Byron, just uh, one, one dad to dad note here, because we're in different seasons of life, is that uh, offer grace to yourself because parents and teachers, I find struggle the most when they see their weaknesses and those they love. And we get really frustrated really, really quickly. And that's where you got to go from the heart to the head, right? And engage all of your training. Cause like, as a dad, my kids are so tired of me hearing, of hearing me say like, all right, we can do this charge into your storm kid. And they're like, Oh, you know what? Sometimes it's nice to have a rainy day. Yeah. When you run through it, it feels great. It's like shower, but they just get so frustrated with me. So Never give up on those things. Be graceful to, but to yourself. And I, I think that's something that like listeners need to recognize is, you know, when we have bad days, we got to pivot, but we can never, we can never fuel ourselves at the expense of focusing on the deficits of ourselves or others. So one tip from each of you, and then we'll close out with one final question. So what's one tip? So I'm working with it. You're working with a group of teachers. What's the one thing that's going to shift the direction of their lives, career, or their day? Ooh, guys, you guys should, folks, you should see the two of them looking off through the distance like, ooh, just one, Ted. I call Byron goes first. Oh, yeah. Well done. <laughs> Progress over perfection. And the tip that I have for that, so often we want to just jump towards you have to be perfect. It has to be done right. It has to be done well. You have to take this test and ace it. You only get one shot at this. And that's the way we've traditionally operated inside of schools and education. But what if as teachers, as parents, as educators, as people, we acknowledge the growth in people? What if we acknowledge the progress that you are making? And what if we operated like a Janella Moore and we saw the potential because we know that you can make progress and recognize that you don't have to be perfect, that the, the, the version of you that is here right now in this moment doesn't have to be perfect. But if we can make progress, if you can tap into that potential that you have, you can transcend this world and really shift from what's wrong to what's strong and do some sensational things. So the one tip that I have for educators, parents, and whoever might be listening, it's time to prioritize progress over perfection. I love it. And I just going to tap onto that. And it had one further reflection for the teachers who are listening. And that is to remember that a child who moves from a 65% to an 85% on a test is the exact same distance as a child moving from 75 to 95%. But we will give that 95% or an award. And just as a reminder that when you move from 50 to 75%, it's the same growth. So I love, I love how you just stated that, Byron. All right, Kelsey, spotlight's on. All right, all right. Um, I think for me, I am going in a similar route, but a little different. So all of my educators on the call, I want you to think about that one student, and I know you know what I mean, who is that one student that just, when, when they're not there, you're like, oh, it's going to be a good day. You know, like it's it, the class is going to be so calm today because the student isn't here. Who is that student that is just having the most, giving you the most grief right now? And I want you to make that student your project for this month. 
And I want you to be able to think about them in a different light. Work with that student in a way, try something new with them. Try to actively identify what their strengths are. I want you to be able to name five qualities about this child that are strengths and not just a fluffy, oh, you know, they're, they're kind. No, I want to go, I want you to go deeper than that. What are five things that this child enjoys doing and, and work on, you know, trying to incorporate some of that into your class somehow. I think just, just focusing on one student, your, your most challenging student. And I know it's easier said than done, and it's not necessarily a tip, but I think just being intentional about that in rather than viewing this student as a challenge, view this student as as a child, a human who, who, you know, who has something to bring to the table, who has something to bring to your classroom. What can they contribute? How can you allow them to contribute whatever it is that they can to the classroom? And I'd add on to that and ask everyone to also do the same thing with the people in their lives who might not be children, your colleagues, family members, people that you work with uh, or, or that you have to collaborate with and that drive you bonkers. <laughs> Who's that one person, right? I love that strategy. Shapes the way you see them, for sure. And, and similar with finding strengths. Once you know someone's strength, it's like, oh, that's why we were buttonheads. You know, like your strength yeah. is this, mine is this. Yes. Makes sense. And let's dance to avoid it. <laughs> yes. Right? So my last question for you both, are you ready for this? This is a, a kind of a standard question I ask people because it, it helps us uh, kind of close out and get to know you. Uh, long version or short version of this is I, I truly believe that music is fundamental to the way that we live our lives. And it's also a great indicator of kind of who we are and what motivates us. And I use it everywhere I go. And I did a podcast on this idea of the 180 song. So it's the idea that if you're heading in the wrong direction, you're having a bad moment, you just need to get uplifted. Like what one song, if you heard, would actually turn you around and get you to go 180? And I learned this from a young woman who had a tattoo of a Spotify scan code on her arm. And she told me to scan it with my phone. And when I did, Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus started to play. And this girl lit up like I had poured fuel in her. And she's like, every time I hear it, every time I hear it, it just makes me happy. What would be your 180 songs? I'm struggling with this. And I'll tell you why. I have a playlist. I have a 180 playlist. Oh my gosh. What's number one? There is no number one. They're all tied. They're okay. all tied. And they're all like women empowerment. Like I can't, I can't choose one. And what's I, a, I what's the first thing that comes to mind? Um, Beyonce is in there. There's a lot of Beyonce. But did Kelsey answer? Like she just gave an artist. Does that count? It's Kelsey? okay. Uh, she, it's okay. She y'all, you, you see all that back there? Those are all records. Like you can't. <laughs> wow. So okay, it's just Beyonce. So any Beyonce song. Yes. She's the majority of my playlist, so we'll go with her. So uh, my mine is my my number one right off the bat is if I hear Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel, that guitar entry, that's number one. But but like you, Kelsey, I mean I have I have entire playlists of like where what I have to do, like hype music, walk-up music, all that stuff. But but that one song, if I hear that one song, no matter what, I just get filled with joy because of the optimism of the song. I originally thought about, because I have a playlist, especially when I do speaking engagements and different songs uh, that, that come up. But the way how you framed it, a 180 playlist to turn things around, that is such a good question. And I will have to go, Okay, I'm going to put my phone down and I'm just going to pull from my brain. And the track that I am going to go with in this moment, here today. It's a lot of editing. <laughs> I know. I'm like, he is, would you just say something? Yeah. So my, you know, the edits. You know, so for much. a couple of people who are such, <laughs> so, such great behavioralists, you sure are indecisive. There's too much to think about. I didn't think he was. Because I am, no, it's, we have to blame your podcast for this. We're so used to the traditional questions and tell us. No, about you're really making us think. Yeah, you're There's nothing. No, tell me about <laughs> chapter five. Page <laughs> That's not my style. Yeah. No way. Yeah. It's a okay. conversation between human beings who just happen to come upon some expertise. Yes, I love, I love it. I'm so, so I'm gonna. By the way, <laughs> I'm gonna go with this one and. I hope your your listeners can understand this. Like I said, I grew up in PG County. So there's a lot of different music that, that we listen to. But I am going to go with 
who run it. And your audience might be familiar, they might not be familiar. I grew up on hip hop, so I love hip hop. And this is from a group, uh, 3-6 Mafia, excuse the name, but they're from a popular group in Memphis. And the song is called Who Run It? And as soon, similar to what you said, as soon as the song comes on, it's just high energy. It's, oh, I am ready to take on the world and I am ready to go. Wow. But the reason for that one is it's high energy. And, and the reason I asked the question is Kelsey's still thinking is this is, is like, I think it's fundamental to, to establishing relationships and supporting risk. And if we're going to get ourselves moving into a real culture where we're going to focus on assets and strengths and, and look past deficits and stop casting blame and focus on noticing people, we got to have something in common and, and we got to know each other's stories and we have to be willing to take risks. And I find the fastest way to do that is by creating those 180 playlists with the people I'm working yes. with. And when the song comes on, it's like, all right, tell me why you got to put a ring on it, Kelsey. Like, what's this mean to you? <laughs> why do you like this song so much? Or or Byron, like, why is this your hype song? Like, why? what, what is this it. doing? What's your story? Because I love it. The hard part about working with kids is not working with the child. It's often working with the adults. And, and some of the different cultural things that get in our way of being optimistic and positive every day. Well, no, I chose who run it to fit with your thing because who run it, what better way than to run into the storm and to lead the charge. So I think that song fits perfectly with, with the entire theme of the podcast. I think the word would be smooth. That was well played. Very good job. <laughs> so, so here's, here's where we're going to end this, right? So this is awesome. Because we've got three of us in three seasons of our lives, right? In, in just different spots. But at the end of the day, three committed optimists. I, I have greatly enjoyed this time with you two. I wish people could, you know, kind of see the the eye rolling and the what and the, just the fun that we've had. But at the end of the day, you know, I wrote down several quotes, but my my favorite, and it's not, I'm not attributing it to either of you because you're co-authors of the book, but this idea of Viewing people through a sum of their weaknesses has to stop and now begin to do the exact same thing and start to harvest their assets and their strengths and focus on that. So the book will be put into the the podcast piece. It's a phenomenal text. Those of you who get to join us for Spring into Success in a couple of weeks, I cannot wait till you see the two of them, their energy, playfulness, but more importantly, what you're not hearing is necessarily just the intellectual horsepower of these two, because this has been a really fun conversation. And the Smart Thinking podcast is about smart thinking, not traditional promotion. So you two were wonderful. And thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank for you having for us. having us. Yeah. So let's do some smart thinking. List what's strong with you. Describe the assets of the people you serve. And finally, review what you heard and how you will apply it today and tomorrow for those that you serve, learn with, and teach. That's it. That's the Smart Thinking Podcast. Hey, as always, thank you for listening. And please make sure to rate this podcast and share it with others who might need just a little fuel to charge into their storms as we're heading into the second part of our year. Also, thank you as always to the Well Pennies for their great music and the opportunity to share with you their talents. Please make sure to follow them on your musical platform and look up Golden Bear Records for other artists that they are producing. Okay. I'm going to leave you with something really quick. I'm going to leave you with one single takeaway that I had that I couldn't stop thinking about after I had heard them say it. And that is simply this. Viewing people through some of their weaknesses has to stop. So let's charge into that storm, the storms that we're facing, and support those who need to run into their storms, especially for others, and focus on all the assets and strengths of everyone around us.